Okay, would you like to uh, turn to two places in your Bible? We're going to do Matthew 5 and we're going to do Matthew 19 today. And at the moment, uh, we are working through a series on the kingdom of God. And uh, what better series, really, than the kingdom of God? And we're looking at kingdom living at the moment, which is essentially about the revelation of Jesus to all that is in heaven being made available to us here on earth. So a small subject then. All that is in heaven being made available to us here on earth. And we're in chapter 5 at the moment looking at relationships. And today I want to look at deep heart connections where Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, which is in verses 31 to 32. And I'm going to read that quickly to you, but I'm actually going to work through Matthew 19 uh, because that contains a fuller version of Jesus' teaching on this subject. But here's the summary. Let's just read that first of all. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So a light-hearted subject uh, for today. <clears throat> and one of the disadvantages to working through a passage is you have to speak on everything that's in there. And just from these verses, you can see straight away we've got some challenging things to talk about. And that's because Jesus' standards for marriage are very high. I mean, so much so that in Matthew 19, at the end of Jesus' teaching, his disciples respond by saying, good grief, or words to that effect. Surely it would be better not to get married at all. And uh, I hope that you don't feel that after the end of what I've taught today. And if you are married, it's too late. Uh, but Alison and I have been married now for nearly 25 years. This autumn, 25 years, I worked out the maths earlier, uh, that next year it will be 25 years. Um, I'm ahead of myself, I'm prophetic. Uh, but even 24 years is uh, increasingly rare, isn't it? And therefore valuable. And I'm going to get mushy for a moment and just say that honestly... I love Alison more today than I've ever done. It's true. She gets tired of me saying it, but it's true. And certainly I love her much more than on that day, that fateful wedding day, when I said I do and she said it. It was the most massive. When you look back, it was the biggest leap of faith I've ever taken because really we didn't know each other at all. 24 years on, and I love her even more than I did then. When I just think of how little we knew, a shiver goes through me. But I, I, I can say that I'm more committed to her than ever. Although I can't say it's always been easy. And uh, sometimes it's taken real commitment to work things through. And, but I want, so I want to say I, I know firsthand something of the ferocious battle that is going on for Christian marriage and for families that are determined to stay together. There is a battle. There is a battle. 
And so Jesus' teaching today is as relevant as it's always been. But at the same time, I confess, I felt a, 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 a reluctance or even a nervousness about speaking on these verses. And that's because some of the things that we're going to touch on are, are deep emotional issues for some people. When you're talking about marriage and divorce, there's nothing involved. And I don't know a single divorced person who went into their marriage expecting the divorce was going to be the outcome. That's not a life choice that anybody makes. And I know something of the pain which many have suffered, and so I want to be sensitive, but at the same time faithfully lay out the bare teaching of Jesus, because fundamentally I believe that his teaching on this subject is good, and it's good for you, it's good for your family, and it's good for society. Uh, so in previous weeks we've looked at other light-hearted subjects like murder and adultery, uh, <laughs> And so in the same way, I want to start with some of the hysterical, hysterical, the historical context for Jesus' teaching. And then I want to explain a bit of the law that they were debating. And I want to let you feel the weight of Jesus' teaching because it needs to go right to the heart. Before I get on to some of the pastoral considerations that this teaching gives rise to, and for some of you, you won't be able to wait until I get to those. But we need to go through the depths that Jesus takes us through to get to that place. A uh, little disclaimer, really. I'm not going to be able to cover everything, even with the comfy seats you're sitting on. There's just not enough time to cover all of the p- possible implications for everyone. And my main focus, because of the series that we're doing, is on the kingdom the message of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. So we're going to be looking a lot at what this teaching is looking to restore to earth in the coming kingdom of Jesus through each of us. So if you'd like to just turn to Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to take you through uh, those verses starting at verse 1. Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 1. And uh, I want to look, first of all, at the historical context for this chapter. And there are two important bits of context that we need to keep in mind as we're going through this. And the first one is the low position of women in that society, the low position of women. We, we saw this last time. I talked about adultery and uh, and, and the whole issue of women having Uh, Very few rights. Uh, They had a a low position in society and for the most part were completely dependent on men to protect and provide for them. They were treated as objects and wives were traded as commodities. And a wife could not divorce her husband in those days. Only the husband could terminate the marriage, which apparently is still true even today in Israel. Even today, there is still no civil marriage or divorce option. Only uh, rabbis can legitimize a marriage or its dissolution. But this dissolution is only possible with the full consent of the husband, who in the end has more power than the judges. 
There's actually been a film done on this, uh, which I've watched some of, not all of, called The Get. It's all in Hebrew, so it takes a bit of watching. But it's about this story of a woman who tries for three years, despite the fact she's been abused by her husband, all kinds of things, trying to get out of this marriage. And it comes to the judges time and time again, and she puts her argument forward, and, and the judges say to the husband, will you allow this divorce? No. She doesn't have a choice. There is nowhere else for her to go. Quite appalling. So again, as with last time, this teaching is primarily directed at men and speaks right into the heart of their attitude to women. But in view of the rights that women have today, I want to suggest that it also applies to you. It's addressed to you as well. So that's the first bit of context. The second bit is that we need to know that as Jesus is speaking, there was in society at that time a big theological argument going on. There was an argument going on between two rival schools of rabbis, one called Hillel, and he had a very liberal view of the law regarding divorce, and Shammai, who was more conservative in his thinking. And it all hinged on some case law in Deuteronomy 24, which I'm not going to turn to, but it appeared to legitimize divorce if a woman became displeasing to her husband or because he finds something indecent about her. So the debate that was going on was all around, well, what kind of things could be displeasing then? Or what could be indecent? And so the liberal Hillel said that displeasing to her husband meant even trivial things like her cooking was not up to scratch or she burnt the dinner. Quite right. (laughs) As long as the man wrote a certificate of divorce so that she could remarry and avoid destitution, the man had done what was required for of him. Who's going to vote with that one? Don't you dare. (laughs) So effectively, what he was saying is that the man could divorce his wife for any cause, any cause marriages. Not so, argued the more conservative Shammai. Divorce could only be sanctioned for some serious matrimonial matrimonial offence, some indecency perhaps, or moral failure, which could be decided publicly by judges. Which sounds better, but you can bet your diary that in that context, it would only lead to more humiliation for women. So actually, women did not prefer that option. So that's something of what was going on behind the question that the rabbis came to Jesus with in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. It says that some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They were asking about any cause divorces. So, who is Jesus going to side with in the debate? What camp did he fall into? Is what the Pharisees had in mind when they presented him with another hot and dangerous potato in Judea on the other side of the Jordan. But Jesus wisely doesn't answer the question about divorce, but instead he takes them back to the original purpose of marriage. Verse 4, Jesus says, 
Have you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate, which is where that comes from in the marriage ceremony. So Jesus takes the argument right back to the beginning. He takes the argument to God's original design, which is a big clue for those that want to develop kingdom thinking. Because you see, when Jesus refers us back to our pre-fallen state, he's making very clear what he has come to redeem to earth. So this is how it is, Jesus says. A man and a woman leave their parents and they're joined to each other and become one flesh. Meaning that something supernatural happens in that act of marriage. Something mysterious which God does. This isn't any contract of sale of goods or any kind of physical thing. It's a miracle. And if you've never seen a miracle, take a look at marriage. There's a miracle that happens where two people supernaturally become one. It's the opposite, actually, of what happened in creation. You know, back in Eden, it says that woman was taken out of the side of man and that they were male and female. We don't really understand that or how it happened or what it really means, but that's what it says. And so marriage is the opposite of that. It's a reconnection of this bond. It's a reunifying of a man and a woman so that there is a mutual complementing of all of the attributes of a man with those of a woman. Did you ever think about that in the context of marriage? That frustration that you're feeling is what you need. You need that opposition, that opposite, that opposite mentality, that opposite way of looking at the world. You know, as a man now, I have a feminine side. She's called Alison. And she has a male side that's called me. Now, these sides don't exist exclusively in one or the other. I've learned more of those feminine characteristics of sensitivity and intuition in being joined to Alison and committing my life to her. And I'm sure that she's got some good stuff from me too. I'm sure she has. There's a mutuality that occurs. There's a partnering that happens in God. And this, according to Jesus, is something that God does, and because of that, only God can separate it. So, here's the implication of what Jesus is saying. How do you think, then, that a bit of paper is going to make any difference to that? A certificate of divorce. How is that certificate going to undo what God has supernaturally done? That's why Jesus says, what God has joined, no man can separate, meaning that divorce is not just regrettable, it's impossible. That's what Jesus says, it's, it's impossible, they're inextricably joined by God. Which kind of knocks the ball out of the field in the Pharisees' argument about whether the law makes divorce possible or not. Because Jesus says, it's impossible. See, Jesus' kingdom 
is about restoring all that is broken in the world. And it's like through marriage, God is literally putting mankind back together. The miracle of marriage is a powerful demonstration of God himself, who lives in inextricable trinity. And it's a picture of the community of heaven as it appears on earth. Is there any wonder then why there is such a battle for it? Why the battle is so ferocious? Why it's so hard? Jesus had a very high view of marriage because he understood God's original intention in it. The Pharisees, it seemed, had a higher view of divorce. So they quoted Moses back at Jesus They referred to the law of Moses in verse 7. They said, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, in the first instance, Moses never commanded divorce, but I'll come on to that. But the thing to see is that because of the Pharisees' obsession to find escape clauses for divorce, They completely missed out on the revelation of God's heart and his character through marriage. So often in the Old Testament, the main metaphor used to describe God's relationship with his people is that of marriage. And it hadn't been an easy marriage either. If you read through the Old Testament story, you'll see it's, it was one of constant grace, constant forgiveness, and constant restoration until finally God says through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse 8, I gave faithless Israel, who he calls a prostitute in the same chapter, I gave her a certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. You know, many people know that in Malachi, it, it uses the phrase, it says that God says, I hate divorce. And I've heard people bandying this phrase around, even well-known speakers and preachers, bandying it around in a kind of condemning and judgmental way be- towards divorced people without really understanding, without really appreciating why God says, I hate divorce. This is why God himself is a divorcee. (laughs) That's what he says. I, I sent her away. I gave her a certificate of divorce because of her adulteries. God himself is a divorcee. He's been through it. He knows what it's like. He's experienced the ripping apart, the humiliation of rejection, the pain and the betrayal from people who refused to honor their covenant with him. God completely gets it. Which is why Jesus had to come. Do you know why? To begin the world's first divorce recovery program at the cross. It was a a ministry of reconciliation real time to the world, which we carry on. 
That's what we have, a ministry of reconciliation, bringing the people that are far from God back to God. It cost him his life, but it's provided a way back to an eternal marriage relationship with God as demonstrated in the bride of Christ. (coughs) Amen? So, why is marriage such an important picture of the kingdom? Well, it demonstrates not only a deep-hearted commitment, but also many kingdom characteristics. Things like faithfulness, things like forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, I don't know if you can see this, perhaps this is all new to you, but think about it afterwards maybe, but marriage, Christian marriage, is a demonstration of the gospel. That's what it is. It's a demonstration of the gospel. So that argument in your marriage that you've been trying to resolve, okay? Uh, that battle to forgive and, and stay together, that making up session, that determination to work things through, in all these things, powerful kingdom life is being demonstrated, which is why sometimes the battle seems so strong. You know, what you are living out through your marriage is very significant, supernaturally and spiritually. Lord, I just want to pray for marriages. I want to pray for marriages that are under attack, even today, represented in this room. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the battle would be won. I pray that peace would come, forgiveness would flow like a river. I pray for reconciliation. I pray for strength in marriages. And that which the enemy would want to do, because he's all about division and separation, Lord, we cancel in Jesus' name. And we just speak peace and unity on marriages. And that demonstration of kingdom power in Jesus' name. So what about Moses' command then to divorce? Well, Jesus corrects the Pharisees, and this is now where we're getting to the heart of the matter. In verse 8, Jesus says, Moses permitted, not commanded, you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus was saying that divorce was a concession because of the hardness of men's hearts, not a command. It is the exception, not the rule. Divorce was never God's plan in the beginning, and neither should it be for those who are part of the kingdom in whom the destructive forces of the fall are being restored. Now, as with all the teaching in this section on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus raises the bar to get right to the heart. Can you feel the pain in it? (laughs) The questions I know you've already got in your heart as I'm saying these things. Just follow me on this. Follow me through on this. He raises the bar to get to the heart, and it's this. 
Marriage is permanent. Divorce is impossible. The heart must change in both parties so that there can be forgiveness and reconciliation and ongoing faithfulness until death. Because that is the only place where the marriage bond is permanently broken. That's Jesus' standard. That's what he's saying. No divorce. It's not an option for you. Marriage is for life. Now, before I get to some of the pastoral issues of that statement, which I know you want me to move on to now, let that statement sink in. Let the truth of it hit your heart. Let it go to the deepest parts of you because that's where you need to change from. And that's where the freedom comes. Truth sets you free, Jesus said. It doesn't condemn. Let's stay here for a moment. I know it's uncomfortable. Just bear with me. I want to speak to married couples now. Because you see, hardness of heart doesn't happen overnight. Jesus says divorce is permitted because of the hardness of your heart, but it doesn't happen overnight. Think about when you first got married. There was no hardness of heart. It was all slush. (laughs) It doesn't happen overnight. And I'm aware of a, a lie that is sown into every marriage. And this lie is called the seed of divorce. And it's always lurking there in the depths. And it manifests itself in something like, well, if this doesn't work out, I guess there's always divorce. Everybody has this in the back of our minds. It's there. Or it has been at different points. Well, I could always divorce him or her. Unless it is dealt with, it's always there. It gets watered, this seed, with every layer of frustration that comes upon the marriage. Every piece of unforgiveness, it gets watered. Every time you feel unfulfilled, taken advantage of, treated badly, it begins to grow. And you begin to nurse that lie in your heart so that it becomes a seedling until finally it becomes a plant and then it begins to see the light of day. And in coming to the surface, it grows almost daily until it gains a power all of its own and you wake up one day and you say to yourself, how did we get here? How did we get here? And it's just like you can't hide it anymore. It's there. It's rooted. It's grown. And now it's out. And divorce at that point seems inevitable. And before you know it, you make that decision. And then your heart is hardened. But it all started with that little seed of divorce. And I want to say to you, married couples, get rid of it now. Get rid of it now. Deal with it 
or get help before it's too late. Repent of the lie and say to yourself, this is a brave thing to say. Say to yourself, divorce is not an option for me. Divorce is not an option for me. Divorce that way out is not acceptable to us. We will not accept that. Say it together. Say it to one another. In those moments of argument, even say, well, whatever, we're going to work this through because divorce isn't an option for us. We're staying together, whatever happens. It does something to you when you've done that, if you understand what I'm saying. Something is laid, something is laid to rest. There's a foundation put into your marriage that makes you strong. Well, whatever, we're going to work this out. Okay, I know there are lots of exceptions and all that, but just hear me. I want to pray for married couples now. I pray for marriage. I want to specifically pray for married couples. Lord Jesus, I want to ask you for courage. I want to ask you for courage in the hearts of married people in this room to say in the face of all that has come on them, marriage is for life. Divorce is not an option for me. I pray for courage for that. I pray for steadfastness. I pray for strength for that, to stand on that, because it will be tested. I pray, Lord, you'd root out lies right now. We rebuke you, Satan, and your lie. We're not having it. In Jesus' name, we speak freedom into marriages right now. Just release your grace. In Jesus' name. I bet you're glad you came today. <laughs> Guys, I want to tell you, this will set you free, this message. You take this to heart, it will bring a new freedom to your marriage. Amen? But a feedback would be nice at this point. Amen. Good. All right, now, okay, you've been waiting for me to come to the pastoral outcomes of this teaching. There are many. And I'm not going to be able to cover them all. So I want to cover some of the obvious ones. First of all, I want to just talk about abusive relationships. Because, obviously, if you say something like, divorce is not an option for me, is that what I'm saying? Does that mean... I'm saying, well, that means you have to stay in that abusive relationship. That's the law, you know? Well, no. I, I know some have taught those things, and some still do, actually. If you go on the Internet and search, you'll see some, some well-known people will say that. But I would never say that. I wouldn't. Uh, the divorce... But saying that divorce is not an option for me and I have to work it out is where we all have to start if we are going to take marriage seriously. But I'd never say to somebody, well, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to put up with it. I don't believe that abuse and, uh, and being a doormat, being a, a hit and punched and all the rest, I, that's not right. No, absolutely not. Not saying that at all. So I don't want you to hear that. 
You see, part of what was going on in Jesus' time was a lot of these any reason divorces. And actually, in Jesus' time, divorce was very, very common. I couldn't find statistics. Well, they're probably not available. But the general idea is, is that, um, you know, men would have 10 or so partners, marriage partners, because divorce was so easy. It was very common. And, and in them, in their, in their thinking, there was no determination to work things through or to honor the covenant of marriage which had been made. And often a man would divorce his wife for frivolous reasons, as I've already said, but more commonly was so that he could marry a more beautiful woman instead. His wife was getting a bit old. She's not displeased. She's displeasing to me. I'll have a more attractive model this year, I think. That was the kind of thing that was going on. So Jesus is not up for that. No way. There's not up for that. And so in, in that area of abuse and that kind of thing, we, we don't, we don't sanction that, we don't encourage that, we don't, we don't teach that. Okay, here's the second one. Well, what about if it's too late? What about if you've already been divorced? What about remarriage? <gasps> well, Jesus covers that as well. In verse nine, he says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Well, you know, despite all that's been said, the Bible never actually prohibits divorce. Uh, it's to be avoided at all costs, and God's own model of grace and forgiveness leading towards reconciliation wherever possible is the kingdom model. But ultimately, some marriages sadly will end in divorce. So actually, the divorce one is probably easier than the remarriage one. Because uh, the, the question of remarriage following divorce is more difficult. And if you followed the line of thinking that I've been through already, uh, you'll realize why remarriage is difficult. It's because of the one flesh principle. You are one flesh with your husband or wife until death. And so to remarry... Jesus says, means automatically in God's eyes you commit adultery because in God's eyes, no matter what the divorce papers say, you're still married. He still sees that bond. And I think this is an important thing to take into consideration if we're to take marriage seriously. And anyone considering remarriage needs to feel the weight of this. I think that's important. And there appears to be only one exception to this, which Jesus refers to as that of sexual immorality, or in other versions it's called marital unfaithfulness, which is actually quite a broad term, and it's debated by scholars, but it seems to cover things, a wide range of sexual misdemeanors, really. I thought about reading the list to you, but maybe you don't want to hear all of that, but it's things like undisclosed premarital sex, Sexual perversion, imagination required, or adultery. So the consensus of its meaning is some act which goes right to the root of the marriage covenant of faithfulness, which makes the, uh, which means that the guilty partner has joined themselves to another and broken that one flesh bond with their marriage partner. And so this, other than death itself, and no murder, you, you can't get away with that either. 
It appears to be the only way that the one flesh bond is broken and the innocent party is free to remarry without the sin of adultery being committed. Which raises another pastoral issue, uh, which is what about if I've already remarried or if I want to? And I think for that, I need to just say to you, well, hold on a minute. Is adultery the unforgivable sin? We did adultery last time, didn't we? And if you haven't heard that talk, I'd recommend that you listen to that. We've looked at adultery. And whereas I can't be too quick to dismiss what Jesus says about remarriage, clearly adultery is not unforgivable, but this aspect of remarriage shouldn't be taken lightly. You see, other than sexual immorality, there is no clear biblical license for remarriage But pastorally, and with my understanding of the grace of God, I think there is the possibility of remarriage. But I have always taken the view, and I know others that I've spoken to have as well, of taking it on a case-by-case basis, and I've wanted to understand all of the circumstances before endorsing it. So, for example, I've got to be careful because, you know, there's some... Uh, confidentiality in some of these things, but we were in, involved quite a few years ago in helping a lady out of an abusive relationship, which was both physical and uh, emotional. And clearly she couldn't stay in this relationship and reconciliation was not only impossible, it was dangerous. And uh, I'm, I was convinced in that instance that the marriage covenant to love, honor and protect was broken and it has been broken by the husband and the wife was innocent completely innocent in the matter she tried time and time again to get help and in that instance i felt no she she's innocent she's free from that and uh, she's now happily remarried with another child and god's given them incredible grace and happiness uh today which is just wonderful there's a picture there of restoration (laughs) there's a picture of the gospel even in that healing brokenness restored another relationship that i was involved in was more difficult because we knew that the young lady concerned had been warned many times not to marry somebody not in a heavy way but just you don't really know this guy He, he seems to have some issues there And she chose to ignore all concerns, including those of her family, put her fingers in her ears and married him anyway because she was desperate to get married. She wanted to be married. He was a good-looking, handsome, muscular man. Until she learned to live with regret because she suffered years of torment and fear in secret because she was so ashamed. And she realized her mistake, and but through that all, she, she just couldn't bring herself to ask for help because she was so psychologically tormented in that situation and so afraid to go outside and ask for help. Eventually, she found the courage to ask for help and was able to get out of that relationship. And in fact, we were instrumental in providing her with protection. We had to hide her from her husband. Horrible. But what would you say to her about remarriage? 
Actually, she has become remarried recently, and she's very happy, but I know that some of the pastoral preparation for that remarriage was perhaps more stringent than it had been for other people. She needed to work some things through. Marriage is a serious lifetime commitment not to be entered lightly in the words of the marriage service for good reason. It's not marriage at any cost. I'll just say to you, if you're not married yet, Paul goes on, uh, Jesus goes on to say, it's probably better that you don't. If you have uh, any doubts, you're better to stay single. And if you've already been married, then you have potentially committed adultery. And if you've not asked for God's forgiveness on this, then I would advise you to sit down together and do this. Just ask God for forgiveness. Like I said, adultery is not the unforgivable sin, but it does still need forgiveness. And who knows, but by dealing with this sin, how it could completely revolutionize your marriage anyway, because that's just dealt with. There's, There's nothing there anymore. God's just wiped it away. So that's my advice on that. So let me just finish with some final remarks. And I want to try and put it back into a, a context again. Sort of say that uh, this is possibly, I, I know, some quite difficult teaching from Jesus. But in my mind, it's no more difficult than his teaching about anger, which says that it's the same as murder. Think about that. <laughs> I only got angry. Well, Jesus said it's the same as murder or lust. He says it's the same and has the same penalty as adultery, which, remember, was death. So that was pretty serious. We've already looked at those two. So why we find Jesus' teaching on marriage more difficult is possibly because it is more physically and publicly apparent and some of those more hidden sins, if you like. So how do you know if I'm lusting, or how do you know if I'm angry? If I don't let it out, it's more secret. But marriage and divorce, it's so public, everybody knows about it. It affects the whole community. So that's why people feel so much more vulnerable (laughs) when you talk about these things. It needs to be dealt with sensitively. It is vulnerable. But all of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount... is impossible for for all of us. We've seen that time and time again as we've looked through this series. It's impossible to live up to Jesus' standards. He takes the law and he says, don't murder, and then he adds to it and makes it even harder. He says, don't even hate. They're all, these are impossible things that Jesus is saying which is why I have to keep returning to those verses at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 to 20, where Jesus assures us that he has fulfilled them all. He has fulfilled the law completely. And in the end, you see, in the end, the law, when it's fully expressed, which is what we've been doing today, leads to despair, (laughs) and it takes us back to the feet of Jesus, and that's what we need. We need a saviour because of the impossibility of the law. We need a saviour who will forgive every part, not just of our sin, but our inability to live up to the high standards of God. 
I'm making the distinction between sin and living up to the high standards because sin is something that you can't tangibly get, whereas living up, it, it's kind of, I've fallen short and I don't exactly know how, but I know I have. Forgiveness for the whole lot. That's what we need because he's, his standards are that of a holy God. So this doesn't make us complacent, the fact that there's forgiveness. The revelation of the law of God when viewed from our position in Christ, actually unlocks our own potential for righteous kingdom living. And there's no condemnation in this teaching unless unless we continue to look to ourselves for solutions. Actually, to come to the place of despair and I can't do this is actually the beginning of your salvation. When it brings us to Jesus, we find the power to change from the heart and start to live differently, like people from another kingdom. Because that's what he wants for us. Amen.